Welcome to the Liberal Europe Podcast, the European Liberal Forum Project. I'm your host, Ricard Silvestre, and today we're very, very glad to have on the pod Tamar Jacobi. Tamar is the president of Opportunity America, which is a Washington-based nonprofit. She's a former journalist and author, former senior writer and justice editor at Newsweek, and even before that, the deputy editor of the New York Times op-ed page. She is now the director of the New Ukraine Project at the Progressive Political Institute, and she's living in Ukraine at the moment, where she reports on the war and the work done by the government and civil society to modernize and make Ukraine a more liberal democratic country. She's also the author of the book Someone Else's House, America and Finnish Struggle for Integration and Displaced, the Ukrainian Refugee Experience. She's also the author of the report for the Progressive Political Institute called Ukraine Other Front, the War on Corruption, that will be mentioned during this conversation. We also go in what is the situation in Ukraine, what will the future bring for that country, and the help that Ukrainians can count on, or not, from the Washington and Brussels bubble. And after our conversation, I'll be back to tell you about some of the events organized by ELF for this month of November. But now, with no further ado, I bring you Tamar Jacobi. I'm here with Tamar Jacobi. Tamar, thank you so much for coming to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Ricardo. Oh, it's great to have you here talking about such an important issue as it is the future of Ukraine. But before that, I want you to tell us a little about yourself. What was the path that you took to get to the point that we're now talking on the podcast? Well, I hate talking about myself, but um, I'm, a, I'm a former journalist. I worked for the New York Times and Newsweek, but for the at least 20 years before the full-scale invasion of Ukraine, I was running my own nonprofits in Washington, D.C., policy nonprofits. And then the, the, the invasion happened, and I actually felt I, it was a personal motivation. I wasn't changing my career. I just thought I would like to come and help. And I found a place to volunteer in Poland, and my idea was I was going to ladle soup for refugees or maybe unpack boxes or whatever they needed to run the refugee center. And I got there, and the director said to me, you'd be really terrible at ladling soup. Um, you're a writer. You need to start writing about what we're doing here and about the refugees. And I, I did start doing that, and that was 20, 18, 19, 20 months ago, and I'm still here. Um, and I've, I've, you know, put my put my nonprofit on hold, and I'm uh, living in Kiev and focused entirely on writing about the war. Also, writing about what I think is even more important than the war, but what's going to come out. I mean, as important as the war is, as existential as the war is, what's going to come after the war? How are Ukrainians going to build the nation that they're fighting for? And that's I'm, those are the that's that those are the kind of topics I'm interested in: nation building and the fight against corruption and democracy building and and um, independent media. Those kind of topics. Very interesting. But why then Ukraine? Because you well, just there mentioned was something about the, there was something about the war that just completely captured me. I, you know, I think I think because the Ukrainians are fighting for the values that I've held dear all my life, democratic values. They 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 don't just want to be independent of Russia. They want to build a European democratic market. You know, a democratic capitalist country um, based on the ideals I think are important, and they're they're willing to. It's a whole country full of people willing to sacrifice their lives for that, mm -hmm. and um, that's that's very compelling. Yeah, and you know, I, I say to people, 
as much as it's all, you know, as painful, as much pain and sorrow that you as you experience in a war zone, it's also incredibly life affirming to be here because people are focused on building a new country in, you know, based on the values that I think, you know, many of us hold so dear. Sure. And of course, I'm going to take 30 seconds here to, to loud you. And I know you're going to hate that, but Please. I don't care, which is uh, what you did is just trem tremendously inspiring. What you just mentioned, you're living in Washington, you're very comfortably, and then all of a sudden you're in Poland trying to give soup to refugees. And then now you're in Ukraine. I'm sure there's very clear motivations for you to do that. But if you can translate that into a sentence to our listeners. Well, what, it's not about... It, what, what's inspiring is the Ukrainians' spirit. It's a whole country of people who are thinking about something beyond themselves. You know, most of us go through our lives, you know, I joke about my generation of Americans, the most important decision we make in a given year is what kind of $30 olive oil to buy. <laughs> This is a country of people who are thinking about what kind, you know, what really, what can they do to help build, fight for and build the kind of nation they want to live in. And that's just, you know, that's deeply, deeply inspiring to me. So let's talk about that. You're in Kiev right now, as you mentioned just some minutes ago. What is the mood in the capital now? And if you can extrapolate it in Ukraine. The mood in the cap, this is a bit of a dark moment. I'll, I'll be candid. You know, most of us have been following, who've been following Ukraine from the beginning. You know, what we remember is that kind of really glorious David versus Goliath mm. moment and the the resilience and the strength and the bravery, you know, the unbreakable Ukraine is, is the word they use here. And that's still true. People aren't breakable. But I think people 21 months into a 20, 2021, I can't count, people are tired. And um, the 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 concerns about will the U.S. continue to support them are very are very worrisome. And, um, you know, the concerns that the world's attention is turning elsewhere. Mm -hmm. And it's winter, it's it's fall, it's, the days are getting shorter, it's getting dark. And, you know, even last year, this at this time, the days were getting shorter, and it was getting dark. And actually, the, the, the shellings of the city had already begun. But people were people were still in this sort of defiant mode. Now people are tired. And I, I was at the front about a month ago and people are even more tired. Soldiers are even more tired and, you know, seeing their comrades die. So, so nobody, and, and on top of that, Zelensky and the leadership have kind of given people permission to uh, feel their, the downside. I think people have been, the downside has been there all along, but people kind of felt they should, you know, not show it or not feel it or not deal with it. But recently, um, Zelensky's said a few things on his evening uh, talks, and of course the commander, General Zeluzhny, published a piece in The Economist sort of admitting to his doubts and concerns. And so suddenly everybody, is, they, they've sort of, I think they've heard that people want to have their doubts heard and recognized. And so everybody's doubts are coming to the surface now. Mm. <laughs> It doesn't mean anybody wants to stop. I mean, nobody, you know, you still meet almost no one who will talk about any kind of ceasefire or negotiation or anything like that. They still feel that it's an existential war and they need all that they need to get rid of the Russians and they need their territory back. But people are that that kind of, you know, plucky grit, you know, David versus Goliath spirit. It doesn't doesn't feel like that this month. I have very good Ukrainian friends and some of them are in Brussels. 
And adding to what you just said, which is some of the fatigue, do you feel also there there could be some pushback from more pro-Russian Ukrainians? Uh, yeah, I haven't heard that yet. Okay. I mean, there've always been these kind of voices, you know, their media voices like that, and people, but but I haven't heard them getting stronger. Or I mean, again, the, the sentiment has been so strong. You know, we hate them and the Russians, and we, you know, we we cannot make. You know, a sort of under, a deep understanding that that you can't really make peace with a with a monster. Yes, <laughs> I find it very hard to believe that the that the or very hard to imagine that the voices that would say, "Come on, let's make peace," are ever going to get much traction. I think very that's good. a the days when you know the days when at least forty percent of the country was kind of Russian speaking, pro Russian, looking to Russia. You know, that's that's gone. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, that's that's you know okay. been bombed out of them. Now, you just mentioned that there's anxiety, particularly regarding the United States and their help with uh, the war effort. Um, by our listeners, by my accent, and naturally Tamar accent, you already understood that we have a very close connection with the United States and we have a very close connection to Ukraine. So let's get into that. As we are recording this, there is a lot of noise in Washington, both from the Senate and from the House of Representatives, I actually, I think, and Tamar, tell me, what do you, if you agree with it, some uh, counter information going on. Yes, we're going to support Ukraine, maybe not as much, maybe we're not going to support at all, maybe we have, we, we need this kind of goodies to do that. So as we record this, the thing is a little bit murky. But what is the analysis then uh, of where we are and where we're going on this? Okay, well, this is risky because I know this is going to be a couple of weeks before this airs. Um, I'll be proven right or wrong by the time it airs, perhaps. But um, I think that the U.S. is going to pass a package. I think it's um, the road is, is difficult because there is a significant faction of Republicans who don't uh, want a package. Um, but I think the way you know politics is a game right so so it's not a, it's not about an absolute majority it's about how the votes work out in different places and how that gets you know negotiated and the way i see it playing out is this the i believe the senate Mitch McConnell republican leader you know the leading republican in the senate is fiercely pro ukrainian aid mm-hmm. and I, he's one of the most able uh, parliamentarians, you know, probably on the planet, but certainly in Washington, and um, you know, leave aside his views, just how good is he at getting stuff passed? Um, I, I, when he says it's going to pass in the Senate, I think it's going to pass in the Senate. I think um, McConnell and Schumer, the Democrat and Republican leader, are working together to craft a good package. That package will pass, and then it will go to what's called conference, is, is, is mm-hmm. what I think we're heading into, with the package that comes out of has come out of the House. And the package that's come out of the House has no Ukrainian aid at all. It has Israel aid and, um, and, it, and a, what's called a, a pay-for, which is offsetting funds, um, it crafted in a way that is um, unpalatable to Democrats. So the Republican bill is really a non-starter. Now the the House bill, excuse me, is a non-starter. Now the Senate will pass something that I hope is what we want, and then they'll go to a conference and fight over it. You know, the new, um, the new speaker in the House who was just elected, he's, you know, kind of a, he's been in politics for a long time, but he hasn't been in leadership before. He's just finding his way. And I think what he did in passing this 
unpalatable to Democrats bill. I think his strategy was keep my side united, prove to them that I'm with them, which is what a leader has to do. But we're hoping, I, I, I hope that that has given him some room to now negotiate. He's proven he's their guy and he's on their side. And so now when they get to conference, um, let's hope that, you know, he can, he can, he'll be, he'll be smart and be a leader. Maybe he won't, but then, you know, we'll, Schubert and McConnell will do whatever they have to do to get something through. So what will it look like? I, I, I'm not sure. I think, you know, the, what the president proposed was a combination of aid for Israel, aid for Ukraine, aid for Taiwan, and some border measures, and some replenishment of U.S. defense stock, defense, you know, materiel stock, uh, stocks. Um, I think those, I'm guessing those elements will remain in it. You know, the big question is, will, what will the size of the Ukraine component be? And, you know, President Biden proposed 60 billion. You know, will they get all 60? It'll probably be a fight, but let's hope they get something close to it. Would you agree with some of the voices that I've been hearing in Washington? Simon Rosenberg is one of them, also John Marshall from Talking Point Man, that there's this fifth column, Russian fifth column, uh, moving towards particularly Republican politics. Because in the Senate, you just mentioned that Mitch McConnell, he's very able and capable of getting his will through. But there are a certain number of senators, and they're not inexorable. They are growing. Uh, there are a number of senators that are weirdly, or maybe not knowing their, you know, their political history, uh, siding with Russian values. Do you think that that is going too far to say that there's well, that? Well, I'm Russian not there. Thing? I'm not there. I'm in Ukraine, right? So, and I read, you know, the Ukrainian press or whatever, as much as I'm reading kind of the, the Hill press. But my instinct is that that's not the main motive. There may be some of that. And, you know, we know Trump was kind of Trump liked other authoritarians. But, you know, it, it, it was a kind of a. I mean, it was an important preference for Trump, the liking the other authoritarians. He liked other people who were like him, who were bullies and who could, um, you know, who didn't care about other people. And, and I think that may, there may be other Republicans like that, but I think it has more to do with, I mean, I do take them at their word. They believe that America, sh they believe that America is not very good mm -hmm. at policing the world and they don't think it's our role to yep. police, be the policeman, you know, quotes and quotes, policeman of the world. And um, they think their problems at home. Yep. And I, I, I mean, I so, you know, there may be some actual pro-Russia in there, but I, I certainly have never heard it. Yeah, it's mostly I agree with you. I, I think that analysis there there are some really weird voices, but that is what happens when you have gerrymandering <laughs> to the end of the world, and then you can elect any anyone basically to the position. But I agree with you. I, I think it's more in one of those America first isolationist uh, kind of. I mean, I mean, let me just say this about America sure. first. I mean, I think the American. I think the, I think it has a few components, right? It's. Partly Americans don't really understand or they're not sure that the world is a dangerous place. You know, mm -hmm. they think most even most leaders are probably not that bad and most people are reasonable and whatever. They're, they don't understand in the way Europeans understand that the world is a really dangerous place or Israelis understand. Um, and then they think, well, even if it is a dangerous place, we got these oceans protecting us. Yeah. 
<laughs> and then they think, you know, again, we haven't been that good at that policeman's role. So why would we take it on again? We waste a lot of money. People die. Why should we do it? We don't need to. We're safe here. We're fine. So there, it's it's kind of the flip side of thinking, you know, that we're the city on the hill. We're the city on the hill so high up that no one can reach us. Let's talk about the future. You just mentioned then uh, the mood in Washington, even if it is at a distance. Now let's go to another mood, a little bit of a distance also, but a little closer to us Europeans, which is the Brussels bubble. Actually, as we're recording this, the president of the European Commission, Ursula von der Leyen, is in Ukraine, uh, her fifth uh, trip to Ukraine during the war. So what do you feel that there are the differences between this Washington and Brussels bubbles? Yeah, so I was in Washington and then Brussels in, you know, two weeks, contiguous weeks, about three weeks ago. And I was very struck by the difference. You know, in America, my friends in Washington, my friends who are pro-Ukraine were, you know, literally tearing out their hair, worried about how are we going to get this package through and how should it be crafted and what do we do and what are we going to do about those crazy Republicans and, you know, a very concerned, uncertain mood. And then I got to Brussels and it was just days after the, I guess, the parliament had passed the $50 billion facility. Mm -hmm. And I think the facility passed like something like 500 votes to 45 or something. I mean, like not even, you know... <laughs> Like not a few doubters in the corner and people were just I mean, they, it wasn't <clears throat> so much that they were triumphant as they were, you know, confident that they were going to be able to help. I mean, there have been, you know, so the, that the anxiety in America of can we get what we want done? I just didn't see any of that. And. I mean, there have been issues that have come up in, in Brussels since. I think the $20 billion military peace facility, military aid, I think that's run into some more trouble. But, um, you know, I, I, I think the mood, it was just night and day, the moods. And I think it does come from a much deeper existential understanding of the challenge here, you know, that, that Russia is is on the on the move so to speak you know on the roll aggressive expansionist you know and can is right there you know is right nearby and can mm -hmm. do harm yep. <laughs> and um and you know and we've seen we've seen many tyrants of that kind you know do this we've seen this movie before um whereas america you know it's just again really far away and people don't understand it in the same way but it was it was very encouraging to see i mean I won't name names, but a few members of the European Parliament, you know, sort of their confidence in, in their leadership and using the word leadership. And, you know, we're going to get this done. Like, don't don't worry, little girl, you know, <laughs> um, this is going to happen. And so so refreshing and encouraging. I wish, you know, we could bottle it and take some of it to Washington. <laughs> we're very positive for, from our side. And then there's China, which is... Um, It's always that uh, little black box. Uh, they, they're trying to help, but not too much. <laughs> they're trying to criticize, but then don't, they don't try to criticize too much. So we have typical geopolitics uh, going on at the moment. And it, it's interesting that you're saying that because our friends from the Baltics, they can tell you that. Kaya Kalish uh, is one of good, good examples. She's like, uh, we have them right next door. <laughs> so, yeah. Should we, like Ukraine, we understand what Ukraine is going through because we, we, we had the same problem. So, yeah, I'm very happy and like you and also uh, the signs coming from Brussels, particularly that there, there will be no fatigue until uh, 
the win, the final win. Uh, right. It's very encouraging. Now, again, well, another I think by the time this airs, um, let's hope we'll have had a report on the Ukraine's progress on the seven conditions. And, uh, you know, progress, I, I, I believe, I mean, all the signs point in that direction, progress toward membership talks. And I think that will be a big boost for the Ukrainians. And now another curveball to you. What will be your definition of win? Yeah, that's a good curveball. Um, I mean, I think the, I, I don't know if I can hit it. Um, I mean, I think, you know, ideal, ideally, I'm certainly with the, I mean, the, A, the Ukrainians have to decide, right? And that's, that is, you know, that's a bottom line. But the, the, the Ukrainians and almost all Ukrainians argue this, who argue that until we get, um, until Russia leaves all of the territory, until we restore our territory integrity, you know, they're not going to stop. Like, it'll be mm -hmm. a pause. And even if we do restore all our territory, it's likely to be a pause. I mean, they're not, um, you know, they, they need, the Russians need a bloody nose in a, in a, in a serious way. Mm -hmm. They need to be driven out and they need to be made sorry that they did it. And they're not sorry at all now. <laughs> you know, Putin's not sorry at all. I mean, he was on TV. He, I saw a clip of him on, on some TV show that just this week saying, we had, I had to do it. I mean, that's the trouble with a stalemate, really. It's not exactly which village gets returned. It's that Putin has to really be made, you know, put in the position where he's sorry he did this, where he feels he damaged Russia rather than helped Russia. And I, I think that's the, you know, and ideally that will be restoring the territory. It's hard to see from here how they restore all the territory. I'll, I'll admit that. It's, you know, the war is the war. I mean, also, let's say this about the military situation. Um, you know, the the, uh, the front lines, Aparisia, Bakhmut, all those places, obviously that's kind of stalled movement. The good news is what's been happening in the Black Sea. Um, Ukraine really is not is damaging ships, pushing the, the Russians back toward Russian ports, opening a new whole new trading lane. I mean, they're making real progress in the Black Sea. That's almost not commented on because people are so focused on the on the stalemate on land. And um you know, I hope that, I mean, you know, again, I'm sort of ever hopeful and I'm not a military strategist, but I hope that's a backdoor to Crimea. You know, let's let mm. the Ukrainians come at Crimea from the back door. Yeah. And, um, you know, that would be, you know, that would be that would be hard, but that would be a huge win. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the point is they need um, they need more weapons. They need better and different yes. and more weapons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that is one of the things that it started with Zelensky, actually, with the ride and the bullets. Mm. But other uh, Ukrainians that I met and actually here in Portugal, uh, they naturally they also came here to do diplomacy and their diplomacy is please get us guns. <laughs> yes, guns. Yes. Well, I mean, we've given them enough. I mean, I'm not the first person to say this, but it's it's true and truer. Um, we've given them enough to make sure that Russia doesn't win, but not enough to make sure that Ukraine wins. And we just have to step, you know, out of fear of, I think, escalation. We have to step up the game. They have to win. Mm -hmm. Very good point. Now, as we're getting into the end of our time together, and but uh, you're always welcome uh, to come back to the podcast. Apart from being on the ground and apart from being uh, there in, in Kiev and, and doing the work that you do, you also are an author, a thinker. Uh, you, you write uh, beautiful pieces, actually. I'm going to put some on the show notes for our listeners to follow your work. But lately, 
or latest, you had one about war and corruption in Ukraine in the Progressive Policy Institute. So I really want you to get into that because one of the arguments that we keep hearing both in the United States and in Europe is that need, the need of Ukraine to also advance on those things that are important for European values. One of them is to fight corruption. That is also, we're not going to get into that, but that. In the United States, all the conversation about Ukrainian prosecutors being corrupted and, and promoting corruption and all that. So to tell you, because you know about this, <laughs> this is the work, you, some of the work you do. So you have the knowledge. Tell us uh, what we, how should we think this war in corruption in Ukraine? Yeah, the, well, the, I mean, Ukraine, Ukraine is, there is a lot of corruption in Ukraine, right? Let's start there by admitting that. I mean, I think, you know, Ukraine's friends sometimes want to brush it under the rug. That's a mistake. Doesn't help them. Mm -hmm. um, they inherited a, a lot of corrupt habits of mind from the Soviet era. Mm -hmm. in, this, in a Soviet shortage economy, command and control economy, you had to bribe. <laughs> there was no other way to get what you needed. And so there are a lot of bad habits left over from the Soviet time that the Ukrainians have, it took them a long time to break away from the Soviet Union in a way that, for example, the Baltic nations were mm -hmm. able to break away pretty quickly. Ukraine had been a much more integral part of the Soviet Union and of Russia, indeed. And so it was harder to break away. And a lot of those habits of mind linger. And you see it in the politics and in the way people live. But the good news is this is not this is learned. It's not intrinsic. It's not immutable. It's these are learned bad habits and they can be unlearned. Mm -hmm. And not only that, but Ukrainians have been fighting them fiercely, not since last week, not since the full scale invasion, but since the Revolution of Dignity in 2014. There's been a very robust, organized, determined, idealistic, reformist anti-corruption movement that's been fighting, you know, like hell, really, against the old guard, the old corrupt guard. And it was a bitter 10-year battle you know, in, that happened in the parliament, that happened in the courts, that happened in the streets. Anti-corruption activists were were beaten up and the old guard used every brutal cheating tactic you can imagine, you know, taking names out of indictments and taking bribes and dismissing cases. And I mean, it just went on and on and on. Um, but, the, but the reformers were pushing back and pushing back hard and they'd created some important institutions. And then paradoxically, surprisingly, the war has really helped in the fight mm -hmm. against corruption. Both the, 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 well, all three things, the damage to the oligarch's property and the, and the uh, under, undermining, taming of the oligarchs, a new popular will, there's a shift in popular opinion where people are voters who I think once said, yes, we're a corrupt country, it's kind of like the weather, what can you do, <laughs> now say, we don't want to live in that kind of weather anymore. My son isn't dying so that we can go back to the old corrupt Soviet ways. We want to be free of the of the Russians territorially, but we also want to be free from their from their old bad habits. So a very strong popular will against corruption now. And the EU has been extremely helpful. The EU conditions the conditionality attached to aid 
and to membership, accession, have been hugely important in putting a thumb on the scale in that internal fight, helping the reformers against the corrupt old guard. And I've, I've seen in the two years I've here, there's been a huge acceleration of reform. And, um, you know, kudos to the EU for playing it so well. And, you know, it's it's still a long, still a long fight ahead. Ukrainian corruption is not going to disappear tomorrow. But they're, they're determined, I think, you know, they're, they're now, there's a very strong political will, and they're heading in the right direction. Well, I'm, um- I'm going to tell this for your knowledge, uh, Tamar, which is the European Union already has a long experience of fighting against corruption because not at the same level, naturally, but there were a lot of countries with a lot of corruption of going on. Yes. And then the EU came in and were like, no, 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 we're not going to allow this. this no. is a- they do. It's not just that they say no, it's that they strategically, surgically, you know, they looked at Ukraine and they said, well, where have they made progress so far? And how do we push them to take the next step on precisely those things? And it was, it was, it was very well done. And I mean, I went to America and went around Washington saying we have to start, start doing what the EU does. And people <laughs> laughed at me. But, uh, you know, we, we wish we would only be so, so good at it. Well, uh, again, uh, we're in good hands in that particular. Of course, the European Union cannot always do more, but we have to fight against not only corruption, but culture, a culture of corruption. Right, Right. exactly. Before I let you go, you have a lot of work that our listeners can get acquainted. I'm actually very, I feel very privileged to have you on the podcast. Please tell our listeners where they can follow your work online. Oh, where they can follow my work? That's a good question. I think it's uh, my my the think tank. I represent a think tank in Washington D.C. called the Progressive Policy Institute, and the let's see, it's actually um, progressivepolicy.org. And then my project, it's called the New Ukraine Project. You'll find it right there. Look under projects, progressivepolicy.org. And about you online, you have a footprint. Yeah, that's that's the best place to look. But like you're in Twitter, on Instagram. Oh, I'm terrible at that stuff. No, I'm <laughs> <gonna look> <laughs> they, they 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 shouldn't look. They shouldn't look for. I have you know. I haven't posted on Twitter in a year. Yeah, well, because I followed you on Twitter and you didn't follow me back, so I'm very hurt. <laughs> well, um, my my feelings are very hurt. <laughs> it's in um, this was amazing. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for talking to me. No, Ricardo, thank you. Very, very kind of you to have me. Interesting conversation. Thank you. And I'm looking forward to have you back on the podcast again. Thank you. I'd love that. I'm back. Just reminded that you can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. And if you feel like it, give us a five-star review. In that way, you can help us spread even more liberal values and ideas. And now for some of the events organized by ELF for this end of November. On the 27th and 28th of November in Warsaw, we have the launch event of the publication Putin's Europe, Russian Influence in European Democracy. The main objective of this publication is to improve the understanding of how Russia is conducting political influence activities against Europe and now liberals, on both European level and member states level, can defend themselves from this influence. This event will have 12 authors of 12 chapters that will discuss the topic of Russian influence in European democracy. And a little bit of uh, podcast host privilege here. 
I'm actually one of the authors, so I will be at that event. I can maybe then later on do a little uh, short summary of that conversation went on. And of course, I have to thank my colleague Milos Udun from Project Polska and of course, European Liberal Forum for the organization of the event. And this is all for now. I'll be back soon with more podcasts. Until then, let's keep making the world a better place. This podcast is produced by the European Liberal Forum, co-founded by the European Parliament, and have the support of the social liberal movement Think Tank in Portugal and Liberty Foundation in Poland. The views expressed herein are those of the speakers alone, and these views do not necessarily reflect those of the European Parliament and or the European Liberal Forum. <laughs> <laughs>